Part 3 Samaditi In the Anguttara Nikaya 1s, 299-300, the Buddha observes, I see no other single Dhamma that is such a cause for the arising of wholesome Dhammas that have not yet arisen, or for the growth and maturation of those that have already arisen, as right view. Samaditi is usually translated into English as right view. The prefix right means in harmony with the way things are. View includes opinions, beliefs, values, theories and philosophies. A right view is thus one that corresponds to reality. The conviction, for example, that acts of generosity lead to happiness would be considered a right view. Right view is the first constituent of the Noble Eightfold Path and is indispensable for the development of the other seven factors. At its most basic level, right view consists of the adoption of a certain number of principles, most importantly the law of Gamma as basic premises or working hypotheses to be relied upon in walking the Buddhist path. On this level, it is referred to as mundane right view. The culmination of the path, an understanding of the Four Noble Truths as a direct experience, is known as transcendental right view. Unsurprisingly, given the central importance of right view as the foundation on which all Buddhist practice is to be established, Teachings aimed at explaining it constituted a large proportion of Luang Po's discourses to the lay community. Right view is, he said, like the cool place unreached by the burning sun. It is our true refuge. Our refuge is the mind that possesses right view. See into the heart of things. Make your view straight and correct. Then, Wrong views will be unable to enter into your mind and mingle with it. That is the meaning of a refuge. Suffering arises whenever there's an incorrect understanding of the way things are. Therefore, Lung Po would emphasize, establishing right view was the first step to the transcendence of suffering. If your view of things is correct, if it is sammatiti, then nothing can go awry. That's to say, when your way of looking at things is in accord with the true nature of things, then you experience nothing as an obstruction. Your mind remains calm and contented, and problems are resolved. Without the effort to look closely at the mind, it's difficult to find the motivation to give up mistaken views. Until then, you're like somebody who drinks alcohol. Nobody can stop such a person from drinking until he sees for himself the undesirable consequences of his habit. So, here we change a mistaken view into a correct one, change evil into goodness, and change an unenlightened being into a noble one. It is right view that is responsible for these changes. These kinds of changes for the better are called merit. He said that people with wrong view had a false kind of contentment, 
similar to the ease of someone who doesn't realize that they've dropped a valuable possession. Right view gave the same kind of inner ease as experienced by somebody who remembered the exact location of a lost valuable and knew how he was going to retrieve it. Although the object was not yet in his possession, his mind was at ease. On another occasion, he compared right view to the key that opened the door to the Dhamma. Without that key, there was no way in. Much of Luang Por's Dhamma teaching was devoted to instilling confidence in the law of Gamma, the central constituent of mundane right view. Most frequently, he expounded upon the simple formulation of that law familiar to all Thai Buddhists. Do good, get good results. Do bad, get bad results. While the brevity of this version of the formula makes for easy memorization, it also gives ample room for wrong views to accumulate. A common cause of doubt amongst lay Buddhists was that the teaching seemed to contradict everyday experience. So many people who did a lot of good things never saw any good come from it, they said, whereas people who did bad things seemed to prosper everywhere you looked. Luang Por never tired in explaining how the good that results from good actions is not to be understood in terms of worldly notions of good fortune. If someone was disappointed that an act of generosity had borne no good results, then the act itself must have been performed with a desire for some reward. If you give something away with a wish for something in return, then it's not true giving. Luang Po explained that people who doubt that good actions lead to good results simply don't understand what the Buddha means by good results. On one occasion, Luang Po said, In my life, I've never once got a bad result from a good action. At the moment that I've done anything good, I've always got a good result immediately there and then. In other words, the wholesome qualities of mind present in a good action were strengthened by the act, and that strengthening was the immediate reward. I'll give you an example. Suppose you have a friend who is poor, and you take him in, look after him, give him money, an education, until finally he is able to get a job, support himself and in time, gain success in his career. Sometime later, you fall onto hard times and become impoverished. This fellow doesn't come to visit you and makes no attempt to help you out and repay you for your kindness to him. You feel angry about this and you think, I performed a good action but received no good results from it. Why on earth did the Buddha teach that good actions have good results? That would be a foolish way to look at what happened. In helping out that man, your mind was good and just and noble, and the growth in those good qualities are your reward. The fact that he doesn't repay your kindness is his own affair. It's nothing to do with you. It's his own bad action. You'd be a fool to take the bad action of someone else into your heart. No good can come from that. 
he went on to give another example as to why the more obvious results of good actions can be disappointing. Say a person goes to work with a certain group of people. Perhaps she's a manager, a director of an institution, a headmistress or whatever, and does a great deal of good. She does the best that can be done, but, in the conventional sense, doesn't get much good out of it. People gossip about her behind her back, criticize her, stir up trouble for her. As time goes by, she seems to have received no good results from her work, only criticism. The person feels discouraged. She doesn't want to go on. She thinks that the Buddha taught that good actions have good results, but that it hasn't worked out like that. Perhaps she rebukes the Buddha for lying, or she thinks the Buddha got it wrong. In fact, it's she herself that is wrong. She hasn't reflected on all the conditioning factors involved. Good actions will only have good results immediately in the absence of opposing forces. A good seed sown in poor soil, or in a time of drought for instance, is unlikely to produce a good plant. The Buddha taught that good actions have good results, and anyone who commits a bad action gets a bad result. When you're determined to do good and go to work as part of a group of unprincipled and immoral people, goodness will be unable to manifest. Why is it that no matter how much good we do, the results won't appear in that place? Because the time does not allow it, the place does not allow it, the people do not allow it. That is an example of the way that good results do not appear. The goodness will only appear there and then, if the action is good, the place is good, the time is appropriate, and the person and group fulfill all the conditions. That good actions have good results, and bad actions have bad results, is an unchanging law. We don't see it because of our own wrong thinking. Opposing Wrong Views At the same time as explaining the nature of right view, Lung Po pointed out the fallacies he saw in beliefs and practices that were in conflict with it. In the first few years after he established Wat Bapong, animist beliefs were still strong in the area around the monastery, and Lung Po was resolute in his attempts to show how such beliefs were ill-founded and brought no real peace. Animism has always lived alongside Buddhism in Thailand. Just as in the human world, powerless Thais have always sought to align themselves with powerful patrons, so in their relationship to the spiritual world have many sought protection and gain from the powerful unseen forces believed to abound. Making offerings to powerful spirits to placate them, or in the hope of enlisting their support in the attainment of certain goals, has not been seen as a religious practice, but as a common-sense strategy in a world of both material and unseen forces. To Luang Po, however, such devotions were superstitions that undermined true refuge in the Triple Gem. 
at the same time as his prestige and the teachings he gave grew in influence, so did belief in his spiritual potency. As a result, animist influences in the area around Wat Bapong declined. Por Nudang was a local man who became one of Lung Po's staunchest lay supporters after abandoning his former beliefs. Lung Po taught us not to look on spirits as our refuge, not to be gullible and superstitious, and not to believe that they were auspicious and inauspicious times for doing things. He said on whatever day you have the opportunity to do something good, if it's convenient and pleasant, and there are no obstructions, then that is a good day. My family were all inspired by Lung Po's teachings. When we tried out what he said, we got results. It gave me faith and confidence in his reasoning and inspired me to practice according to his teachings. Por Nudang's family had always been nominally Buddhist. They regularly went to make merit in the local monasteries, but they had only the most superficial understanding of the Buddhist teachings. It all started with my wife. She was a medium. My grandparents had all worshipped a kind of spirit called Pi Tai, which they believed was a refuge that could protect them from every danger and misfortune. Their beliefs were passed down to my generation. It's a depressing story. It's as if we were fools who'd volunteered to be somebody's slaves. And it wasn't easy to give up. It was a real wrench. Poor Nudang, at his wit's end as to how to free himself from the thralls of the spirit, went to pay his respects to Luang Po. I asked him what we could do so that the Pi Tai would leave my family alone. We sat talking about it at his guti until two in the morning. His advice was that my wife and I should keep the five precepts strictly for three months, chant the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha every day, and develop metta meditation. We should spread kind thoughts to all sentient beings that are in distress, those living in houses, living in trees, in the mountains, everywhere, we should radiate kindness to all our companions in the sufferings of birth, old age, sickness and death, wishing they would bear no enmity against each other. In those days I was pretty poor, and my house was just a small hut. I wanted to invite Lung Po and some of his monks to take a meal there, but I was afraid it would be inconvenient for them. He said, is it big enough for five monks to sit down in? I said it was, and he said, Then we can go. If you don't have any money to buy food to eat with the rice, don't worry. Just boil up some cassia leaves and make a curry. That would be fine. A few days later, Luang Po took a group of monks to Po Nudang's house. Before the meal offering, they chanted auspicious verses of blessing. And after it, Luang Po gave a talk to the extended family and friends, in which he expanded upon the advice he had given Po Nudang. Because of the respect I felt for Luang Po, I did all of what he suggested. My wife and I were able to keep the five precepts purely for the whole of the three months. In fact, 
I've kept them ever since. I was thirty-six then, and now I'm almost seventy. From the day that Luang Po came to our house, no spirit ever appeared again. There were a lot of other households in the village that had lost their faith in the power of spirits and wanted to get rid of them and give up their devotions. When the news got around about our success, a lot of people who had never been interested in the monastery before started to go to pay their respects to Luang Po, and soon there were more invitations for him to take his meal in the village. After he'd finished his meal, he would teach them to take the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as their refuge, and then there would be a Chakbangsukun ceremony. When Luang Po left the house, he would have the host take the spirit house along, and have him burn it by the side of the road as soon as they were out of the village. So that was the end of the problem. We've lived peacefully ever since, and no spirits have come to trouble us. One of the more bizarre beliefs still to be found in northeast Thailand during Luang Po's lifetime was that termite mounds were holy and able to grant all kinds of wishes for health, wealth, and protection. On this topic, Luang Po pulled no punches. When your grandchildren get bigger, you take them to bow to a termite mound in the forest. It looks strange, you think, so it must have some sacred power. You bow to it and start muttering away with your requests. What you're really doing is asking a pile of termite shit to make you rich. Sometimes a termite mound comes up underneath someone's house and they're overjoyed. They rush off to get a monk's robe to wrap around the mound. They go and get some flowers to offer to it. Meanwhile, the termites go on making their home bigger and bigger. In the end, the owners of the house have nowhere to live because it's full of holy paraphernalia. They don't know where to live in their own home. And so what do they do? They pray to the termite mound for guidance. It's the deepest pit of delusion. Astrology Few Thais see a conflict between a belief in astrology and their identity as Buddhists. As with animist practices, the two things are usually seen as occupying different spheres of influence. The underlying assumption is that if life is a venture fraught with dangers, it makes sense to use whatever means lie at one's disposal in order to maximize the chances of survival and success. If astrology provides access to useful inside information, one would be foolish to ignore it. The assumption that astrology and Dhamma are compatible has been strengthened by the number of respected monks in urban areas who over the centuries have disregarded the Vinaya prohibition, studied astrology and offered advice based on their charts to lay supporters. One of the most common occasions on which an astrologer is consulted is to ascertain the most auspicious date on which to stage an important event, such as a business deal, a wedding or an ordination. This kind of custom may seem relatively benign, even charming. However, for Buddhist teachers like Luang Po, 
it was important to point out how a belief in the influence of the constellations is in conflict with the most basic tenets of the Dhamma. Longpo held that consulting an astrologer presumes a rejection of the Buddhist teachings that the auspiciousness of an action is determined not by an alignment of the stars, but by the virtuous qualities that the actor brings to it. In other words, a belief in astrology as a guide to action in the world is a denial of the law of gamma, and thus an undermining of right view. Longpo observed that the fascination with astrology was bound up with fear of change. They're afraid. Afraid something or other is going to happen to them. Afraid of this, afraid of that, because they lack a firm faith in the virtues of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. He insisted that our life is the result of our actions. He would quote the Buddha's words. We are born of our gamma. Our life abides supported by our gamma. It is our refuge. Fearful, gullible people who are worried about the future go to see an astrologer, he said, and are told, This year you should be careful. If you go on a journey, beware of an accident. In fact, Lumpur said, whatever day you go on a journey, the most likely cause of an accident is your own behavior. Civil servants, who've been posted from Ubon back to Bangkok or to another province, come to see me and ask, Luang Po, what would be a good day to leave? I tell them that if they leave in a good way, then every day is a good day. Usually when civil servants take up new postings, they give a farewell party and everyone gets drunk. That's not a good way to leave. If they're not careful, they'll drive into a ditch. Establishing firm confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, he said, gives clear guidelines for conduct. Don't be swayed by hearsay about what is auspicious. To do so is in itself inauspicious. People talk among themselves, reinforcing each other's claims, and before you know it, they've decided the water in some pond is holy and they've started drinking it. It's not good to get carried away with these things. The Buddha taught us to develop a wise reserve. When people start enthusing about things being holy and auspicious, simply listen with an open mind. On another occasion, giving advice to a young couple on their wedding day, he said, People consult an astrologer. They get married on an auspicious day. The monks chant the blessing at an auspicious time and so on. But within a week, they can be at loggerheads or bickering with no interest at all as to whether it's a good day for it or not. When people start quarreling, then the astrological concurrences or the day of the week can't restrain them. The auspicious cotton threads tied around their wrists at the wedding don't help. Nothing can withstand their emotions. It's only through trying to create goodness, learning to know what goodness is, that we become good. What date should you get married? What date should you move into a new house? Well, is everything prepared? Is it an appropriate time? Have you got enough money? 
if the external conditions are fulfilled, then it's a good time. But whether or not the year is good, the month is good, the day is good, the time of day is good, it's good actions alone that make people good. Lottery Numbers Thailand shares the worldwide love of lotteries. In the countryside, villagers prefer to play an underground version in which bets are laid with local bookkeepers on the last two or three numbers of the national lottery. It's widely believed that monks who have developed deep states of meditative calm are able to predict these numbers. It's by no means as outlandish a notion as might be imagined. In fact, certain monks have shown an ability to make a string of uncannily accurate predictions. The unfortunate repercussions are to be seen in the people whose foremost reason for going to the monastery is a hope of getting the next lottery numbers rather than the cultivation of generosity, precepts and meditation. As the Vinaya prohibits monks from promoting any form of gambling, monastics who wish to pass on lottery numbers give broad hints or smuggle them into Dhamma talks. Some people listen to discourses straining for numbers, and, given that the Buddha's teaching is often couched in lists, they are seldom disappointed. Many lay Buddhists, who do not listen to talks specifically for numbers, Nevertheless, consider it lucky to take their twice-monthly number from the mouth of their teacher. What could be more lucky? The teacher announces that he will be away from the monastery from the third until the seventh of the month, and a certain proportion of his audience cannot help but make a mental note, 37. Over the years, many people enjoyed large winnings on the lottery, which they attributed to the kindness of Luang Po, despite his insistence that he would never promote gambling in any such a fashion. Logical fallacies may contribute much to such a belief. One syllogism holds that monks share lottery numbers because they feel compassion for the poverty of their disciples who have no other way to make money. Luang Por is greatly compassionate. Therefore, Luang Por must intend to reveal the numbers that appear to him during his meditation. Luang Por's concern was with the bad gumma created by people entering monasteries seeking material gain. In the early days, when people came to ask for lottery numbers, Luang Por would scowl at them. Cowed, the applicant would slink away. But to those close to him, Luang Por said, I can't tell you. Even if I did know, I couldn't tell you. Gambling is a path to ruin. Afterwards, you'd come to grief. The coded or polite way of asking a monk for lottery numbers is to ask for something good. One particularly insistent man would not take no for an answer. Finally, Luang Po smiled and said, Something good? You're doing fine. You haven't got scabies. You haven't got ringworm. You haven't got leprosy. You're already doing very well. Another time a lay person came to make offerings to Luang Po with the hope that Luang Po would give him the lottery number in return. He made a formal Pawarana invitation, requesting permission to provide anything at all that Luang Po needed. He would also bring a regular supply of good food and fine requisites for the monks. Luang Po listened in silence. 
After he left, Luang Po said to the monks, Beware of that one. Don't be swayed by his big pots of curry. Some days later, after the next lottery draw, the layman returned looking glum and resentful. He said that he'd invested a lot of money in the monastery and he wasn't even breaking even. When would Luang Po give him the numbers? Luang Po replied bluntly, What do you think I am? Your servant? If you have any respect for me, why are you talking like that? If that's your reason for coming to the monastery, then you've come in the wrong way. The layman disappeared for three or four days. He returned with a tray of flowers, candles and incense to ask for forgiveness. The 16th of January 1993 was the day of Luang Po's cremation. It was also lottery day. In the preceding week, there had been an unprecedented surge of bets on 16 throughout the towns and villages of Ubon and beyond. It was with a weird sense of inevitability that when the announcement of the national lottery draw was made over the radio, the last two numbers were, sure enough, one and six. It became known as Luang Po's farewell gift to the people of Isan. Lustral water. Lustral water is generally understood to be water that a monk has chanted over and invested with psychic energy. It is widely believed that lustral water, prepared by an enlightened monk, possesses miraculous potency. Many people came to Wat Bapong with the hope that Luang Po would sprinkle lustral water over their heads before they departed. For a long time, Luang Po would resist such requests but in later years he became more tolerant. Although he insisted that he was using ordinary water, his guests would plead with him to sprinkle it over them anyway. The tangible connection provided by this ritual proved such a joyful and moving experience for its recipients that Luang Po often did not have the heart to refuse it. One day, just before taking leave of Luang Po, a guest crawled towards Luang Po and, prostrating himself at his feet, asked to be sprinkled with lustral water. After a moment, Luang Po said, I haven't boiled any water today. The man looked up with a baffled look on his face. People come and ask to be sprinkled with lustral water, and I've been thinking that it might be a good idea to do it with boiling water. People's defilements are so callous that it might be a good idea to blister them a bit, make the teaching hurt. I tell people to meditate, and they won't do it. All they want is lustral water to ease some problem, relax some tension, and I sprinkle their heads in a perfunctory way. But if they come again, I'll do it with boiling water. People are so childish. What can lustral water do to help you? If people get what they want, they laugh. If they don't, they cry. Everyone is the same. That's why there are so many fools in the world. Intelligent people come here to seek the way out of suffering, to seek the path of practice that will give rise to true wisdom in order to know Dhamma, to realize Dhamma in their hearts. They have peaceful minds 
and teach themselves all the time. They have a deep sense of well-being. They don't have to laugh, and they don't have to cry. Sometimes the people who came to visit Lung Po had become so intoxicated by their studies of the Dhamma that rather than receive teachings from him, they could not help but show off their knowledge. In extreme cases, where words would have little effect, Lung Po might simply sit in silence, patient and still. If the voluble layman, it was always a man, was a person of rank, he almost always was, Lung Po might say a few words before the man left that would not embarrass him in public, but would give him food for thought. This was the case on one occasion when a senior army officer, accompanied by his entourage, came to visit Lung Po. As soon as the opportunity presented itself, the man began to expound on Dhamma at great length, quoting by heart from the Buddha's discourses. Some two hours passed, with Lung Po hardly speaking a word. Finally, the army officer said, Lung Po, we would like to ask to take our leave now. Please sprinkle us with lustral water before we go. I already have. When was that? I'd know about it if you had. I've been sprinkling for the last two hours. Didn't you feel anything? The army officer had read and remembered the gist of many books, but his look of confusion revealed that he had no understanding of the nature of blessings. One amongst many lustral water stories concerns Luang Po's teacher, Luang Po Ginnery, who at the end of his life found it hard to coordinate his limbs. Placed in front of him as he spoke to his guests would be a bowl of lustral water for blessings and his spittoon usually containing red betel nut saliva. One day, some lay people asked for lustral water and he mistakenly dipped the wand into the spittoon and sprinkled them with red saliva. When they shouted out his mistake, he said simply, betel nut saliva, lustral water, same thing. Amulets Amulets engraved with images of the Buddha or of revered monks, have long been treasured by Thai lay Buddhists. They are worn like crucifixes around the neck. It is widely believed that such amulets may be empowered by monks with psychic powers and provide protection against harm. There are many stories of people wearing such amulets, becoming immune to bullets and knives. Unsurprisingly, they have always been highly sought after by soldiers and gangsters. Amulets may be commissioned by groups of disciples of a teacher or by monasteries in order to raise funds. Over time, a market has developed. Newly minted amulets are advertised in full-page advertisements in the daily newspapers. People collect, buy and sell amulets on a large scale. Rare amulets change hands for thousands of dollars. Amulets have become big business, providing large rewards, and the participation in this business by monks has been a cause of corruption in the monastic order. Luang Po was not against amulets as such, particularly if they were engraved with images of the Buddha rather than of individual monks. He also never denied that it was possible for amulets to be empowered. He was, however, opposed to amulets being taken as a refuge higher 
and more efficacious than the triple gem. In the case that people acquired an amulet they believed could ward off danger, they often became heedless, convinced that even if they acted badly, the amulet would protect them from the consequences. He saw increasing numbers of people paying more attention to the religious symbols themselves than to the things they were supposed to symbolize. Many senior monks now give amulets with their own image engraved upon them as gifts to visitors. But when guests at Wat Bapong asked if Luang Po had an amulet for them in the accepted polite phrase, Luang Po, do you have any good things? He would reply, I don't have any good things. Or if I have, it's something that is better than all good things, and that is Dhamma. Those who practice Dhamma can protect themselves. More and more people came to Wat Bapong with requests for permission to produce Luang Po Cha medallions. Once minted, they said, they would offer them to Luang Po to distribute as he saw fit. Many of Luang Po Man's other great disciples had already agreed, they would add. His disciples would appreciate it so much. But Luang Po would not be moved. He maintained his position on medallions with tact and diplomacy. On one occasion, a high-powered group of laypeople, led by an influential politician, came from Bangkok to see him. They said that people all over the country had great respect for Luang Po. It would be greatly auspicious if Luang Po would allow them to produce medallions with his image on them. So many people wanted to have some small memento of him to which they could pay their respects. It seemed that the group was acting with pure intentions and given the social status of its members, a number of monks thought that this time Luang Po would finally relent. Instead, he informed his guests that it would only be possible with the permission of the Sangha. At the next Sangha meeting, Luang Po raised the issue of medallions and detailed all of the undesirable consequences of agreeing to the request. He then asked if members of the Sangha could think of any further good or bad points of the proposal. Nobody could. Finally, a unanimous decision was made to refuse permission. Luang Po informed the lay group that the Sangha would not allow the medallions to be made. Eventually, a group of lay supporters made a batch of Luang Po Cha medallions without asking his permission first, and arrived in the monastery together with their proud offering. Faced with a fair compli, Luang Po accepted the medallions and distributed them amongst his closest disciples, but afterwards made it clear that he absolutely forbade such productions in the future. It ran against everything that he was trying to teach the lay people. He didn't want them to get attached to such things. He was also aware that before long such medallions became merchandise, the subject of buying and selling and bartering, and even of theft. Instead of easing the stress and turmoil in the owner's mind, medallions were as likely to have the opposite effect. On one further occasion, he had the vast majority of medallions produced without his permission buried underneath the Oposita Hall. Ceremonies In the Buddha's time, 
belief in the purificatory power of ritual was a central tenet of the Brahmanist tradition that the Buddha roundly rejected. He maintained that true purification could only be realized through a systematic training of body, speech, and mind. It was not, however, that ritual was to be completely eschewed. Its psychological benefits were recognized and harnessed for the benefit of Dhamma practice. Lung Po Cha was adept at using ritual in appropriate circumstances, but he was resolute in his opposition to the belief that there was some inherent sanctity in ritual independent of the mental states of the participants. Lung Po was diplomatic and accommodated non-Buddhist, usually Brahministic customs that did not clash with Buddhist values. On special occasions, perhaps when close lay supporters were celebrating a move into a new house or a marriage, he would accept invitations to take his daily meal at their house. There, he would have no objections to the white sai-sin thread tied to the Buddha image at one end, being passed down the line of monks and being held by them as they chanted verses of blessing. During the chanting, he himself would perform the ritual of creating lustral water by guiding the wax from a burning candle into a vessel of water. Before leaving the house, to the delight of all, he would sprinkle this water over all the assembled family and friends. He acknowledged their wish to uphold the customs that defined their culture. He also recognized how ceremonies and rituals gave a sense of occasion and provided an emotional impact that made an event a memorable and fitting marker of a major life change. But Luang Po never gave these things central stage. The main focus of his visit to a household was always the Dhamma talk he gave after the meal. Tattooing the body with mystic symbols as a protection against misfortune was one custom in which Luang Po could see no redeeming features. The belief that inked skin, rather than a judicious mind, kept one free from suffering, he considered to be a particularly clear example of a misguided superstition, one which he, as a teenager, had shared. The pain and expense of tattooing for protection was something he considered quite pointless. In the old days, when men got to the age of 19 or 20, it was the custom for them to get their legs tattooed. They were willing to do it no matter how much it hurt. It would start from morning and go on steadily doop, 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 throughout the day. Their blood would be flowing and they'd have to keep driving away the flies, but they'd carry on even though they were in agony because they believed. And that, he said, was precisely the danger of belief, the willingness to endure and persevere in the absurd. Luang Po's criticisms of local traditions were not based upon a view that having a good time was in itself somehow sinful, only that it should be acknowledged for what it was, and not be dignified by a spurious religious authority. He said that it was a travesty to call annual rocket ceremonies with all the drunkenness and frequent accidents they entailed, a merit-making event. Nobody becomes a good person through banging a drum, he once said wryly. 
His teachings on the topic may be summed up as You can't make something virtuous just by calling it so. This was the hub of his criticism. When so-called merit-making ceremonies included drunken carousing, then the understanding of merit, and thus of right view in the community, was undermined. He sympathized with hard-working villagers wanting to let off steam every now and then, but as a monk, it was his duty to clarify and protect Buddhist values. Luang Po constantly challenged people to step back from their daily struggles in order to gain an overview of their lives. He said that if you didn't do that, you could get to your old age without ever realizing what it means to be a human being. He once related speaking with a group of elderly people and asking them about themselves. You've all spent your lives striving for money and possessions and now you're old and close to death. So, what do you think is truly worth getting in this world? Where is it to be found? He said that he asked many members of the group and found them bemused by the question. The answer he received most often was, I don't really know. He gave them his answer. What you truly get from your life is the goodness and the badness that you take with you into the next. Our minds embed themselves in the things they give meaning to and value, the wholesome and unwholesome, the meritorious and the demeritorious. These are the things, the merit and the demerit, goodness and badness, that the Buddha said we take with us. All that you've created in the world belongs to the world. Although you've cut down a tree in the forest and built a house with it, every part of that house is the property of the world. You can't take it with you. Some people aren't aware of what truly belongs to them and what doesn't. What belongs to them is the goodness or badness that generates their actions. He continued, Peace, clarity, and purity. These are the things that human beings really need because they are what we can take with us. Wherever goodness arises, then bounty and happiness follow. Wherever a wise person goes, he creates lasting progress. Even if he starts farming on poor soil, he can make it good and productive. Faith in the Triple Gem since the days of the Buddha, people with faith in his teachings have declared their commitment to them by affirming three times, Buddhang Saranang Chami, I go for refuge to the Buddha, Dhammang Saranang Chami, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, Sanghang Saranang Chami, I go for refuge to the Sangha. Most simply put, taking refuge in the Buddha means looking to the Buddha as the supreme teacher of the path to peace, compassion and wisdom. Taking refuge in the Dhamma means taking the Buddha's teachings as the supreme map of that path. Taking refuge in the Sangha means taking the enlightened disciples of the Buddha as supreme leaders on the path, 
examples that the path is possible to follow and explainers of it. There is also a more profound way of understanding these three objects of refuge. Lung Po taught that the meaning of the Triple Gem has a transcendental dimension, that the three objects of refuge refer also to timeless, immaterial qualities that may be realized in each person's mind. In this sense, the Buddha refers to inner awakening, the Dhamma to the way things are, and the Sangha to the right practice leading to awakening. Throughout his teaching career, Lung Po sought to encourage lay Buddhists to go beyond a mere superficial affiliation with their religion expressed in material support for the monastic order and ritual observances. His concern was that they should learn how to use the Buddha's teachings to reduce suffering and increase the quality of their lives. He did this by bringing the teachings down to earth, expressing them in the vernacular and revealing them as tools to be used in daily life rather than as objects of reverence. This strategy is clearly revealed in the way that Luang Po spoke about the three refuges. He emphasized that Buddha does not only refer to the founder of the religion who some 2,500 years ago lived in India, as it was his realization of the Dhamma that transformed Siddhartha Gautama into the Buddha, his Buddha nature and the Dhamma were one and the same thing. When you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha, and all your doubts vanish. The Buddha is the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the Buddha. The historical Buddha did not take enlightenment with him. He left it right here. Therefore, as the Dhamma is timeless, Lumpur insisted it is still as accessible to one who follows the Buddha's teachings as it ever was. The Buddha is still present today. The Buddha is the truth. The truth is always present. No matter who is born and who dies, the truth remains the same. It never disappears from the world. It's always here in exactly this way. Seeking to express this idea to a group of teachers, he drew an analogy. There is a body of knowledge and skills that, once mastered, allows people to make a living as a teacher. People become teachers for a number of years and then retire. But the knowledge and skills that made them teachers remain. Similarly, the truth that makes a human being a Buddha still exists. It hasn't disappeared. Two Buddhas are born. One is physical and the other immaterial. As for the true Dhamma, the Buddha said, Ananda, keep practicing. You will thrive in the Dhamma Vinaya. Whoever sees the Dhamma sees me. Whoever sees me sees the Dhamma. How could that be? It sounds as if the Buddha and the Dhamma are being mixed up and made into the same thing. Actually, to begin with, there was no Buddha. The Buddha could only be called by the name of Buddha when he realized the Dhamma. Before that, he was Prince Siddhartha. It's like all of you. 
now you're just unenlightened village folk. But if you were to realize the true Dhamma, then you'd be exactly the same as the Buddha. There would be no difference. So understand this point, all of you, right now. The Buddha is still present. Luang Po found the belief, originating in scholarly circles, that it is no longer possible in the present day and age to realize enlightenment, to be a pernicious one. He spoke grimly of the kamma created by scholars who criticized those putting effort into the practice of the teachings as wasting their time. He considered the holders of such a view like fools who conclude that because they can see no water beneath their feet, that there can be none beneath the earth they stand on. To put it simply, practice is like digging a well. In the Buddha's time, they dug down into the earth in order to find water. When they met roots or rocks, they removed them and eventually they reached water. There was no need to create the water. All they had to do was dig the well to access it. In the present day, you can dig a well in order to get water in exactly the same way. Whenever you get down to the water-bearing strata, you'll find water. Merit The accepted English translation of the important Pali word punya is merit, in Thai bun. The rationale for this rather puzzling rendering is given by the great contemporary scholar Bhikkhu Bodhi. The tenor of our inner being must be raised to a pitch where it is fit for the reception of some new disclosure of the truth. We can only grasp what we are fit to grasp, and our fitness is largely a function of our character. The existential comprehension of truth thus becomes a matter of inward worth, of deservingness, or of merit. The capacity to comprehend truths pertaining to the spiritual order is always proportional to the store and the quality of the merit. Making merit is the most popular religious practice of Thai lay Buddhists, and as such has over the centuries been the most misconceived and most subject to distortion. To this day in Buddhist communities, the knowledge that punya means that which cleanses the mind, in most cases equivalent to good gamma, is far less widespread than might be expected. The Buddha taught that cleansing of the mind takes place through three main activities, acts of generosity, cleansing the mind of attachment to material possessions, moral virtue, cleansing the mind of the intention to harm self and others, and mental cultivation, systematically cleansing the mind of defilements. The last was considered by far the most powerful source of purification. A single moment of deep inner peace was said to create more merit than an offering of alms to the Buddha himself. Over the centuries, the Thai lay Buddhist community as a whole came to put an overriding emphasis on the first kind of merit-making activity, acts of generosity. The meaning of merit-making shrunk to offerings of material support to the Sangha. The focus shifted from the inner cleansing of the mind to the outer activity that was believed to produce it.
once merit was located in the activity rather than the mental cleansing, all kinds of corruption could occur. Unskillful acts, such as drinking alcohol and killing a cow or a pig for a feast in a merit-making ceremony, crept into Buddhist communities. Unscrupulous monks taught that merit was to be measured by the amount of money offered to the Sangha, a phenomenon that unfortunately flourishes to this day. Throughout his teaching career, Luang Po devoted himself to explaining the true meaning of merit and to encouraging his disciples to apply themselves to all three kinds of merit, particularly the most neglected area, the cultivation of the mind. Luang Po did not, however, disparage those who felt unready to apply themselves to meditation practice. It has always been the case in Buddhist societies that most householders view the direct path to enlightenment as too steep and rugged for them to climb. They have considered the gradual accumulation of merit as a more realistic and less unsettling option. Through honesty, kindness, generosity and virtue, they seek to increase their merit in a way that combines a gradual spiritual cleansing with the more familiar worldly fruits of a happy family life and worldly success, both in this world and the next. Although this attitude was accepted by the Buddha as a rational and a legitimate choice, ultimately it was a waste of the opportunities for profound spiritual progress afforded by a precious human birth. Luang Po recognized that good health, a stable and happy family life, a fulfilling career, a measure of inner peace and the confidence in a good rebirth awaiting after death would always be the basic goals of most people in the world. It was the role of merit in promoting the attainment of those goals that needed to be clarified. With a wrong understanding, bad gamma could be performed in the belief that merit was being made while good gamma could be neglected in the belief that it was too difficult to create. Luang Po warned that all merit-making acts, beginning with generosity, needed to be performed with awareness. Donors should consider whether their gift would be appropriate for a monk and allowable for him to use. If giving was primarily motivated by desire for praise or reputation or a material ward of some kind, much of the inner cleansing would be nullified. The act of generosity would be little more than a transaction. The admirable impulse of generosity needed to be accompanied by the effort to train the mind. It was the wise means to maximize the merit. On one occasion, Luang Po said to a large group of visitors, These days, everyone wants to make merit, but hardly anybody wants to abandon demerit. In fact, these two things are inseparable. Luang Po said that a love of making merit unaccompanied by the determination to abandon harmful acts of body, speech and mind demonstrated a lack of understanding of what merit really was, what supported it and what undermined it. He often explained this point through use of the word kusala, usually translated into English as wholesome or skillful, and assumed by most Thai lay Buddhists to be synonymous with merit. 
In fact, Lungpur explained, Kusala was a wisdom factor that was needed to govern the performance of meritorious acts. Without this kind of wisdom, people could become overly concerned with the anticipated future rewards of their good actions or be influenced by desire for praise or good name in their community. Many would simply bask in the good feelings produced by their good actions and see no need to penetrate any further into the Buddha's teachings. Wisdom was needed to avoid problems. Without knowledge of how to look after their minds, the good gamma they had created would be vulnerable to corruption. Make merit in order to gradually reduce the suffering in your mind. To do that, you must at the same time develop wholesome qualities in your mind. Merit by itself is just like fresh meat or fish. If you leave it around too long, it will go rotten. If you want to keep it for a long time, you have to salt it or put it in the fridge. As you make merit, keep reflecting. By that, I mean using your intelligence or wisdom to destroy defilements. To explain the discriminative function of the mind that was needed, Luang Po drew an analogy with mathematics. The idiom making merit points to the prevailing idea of merit as simply something you create or accumulate. This, he said, was simplistic. It's rather like in mathematics, where you have to use different methods, multiplying, adding, subtracting and dividing in order to get the right sum. The mistake people made, he said, was that in the zeal to add and multiply, they don't subtract and hardly ever divide. In fact, it is subtraction and division that brings a lightness to the mind. Luang Po's point here was that when merit was understood to depend on an inner wearing away of defilement, then merit makers enjoyed a sense of lightness whenever they let go of the burden of self-concern. When motivation had shifted to the earning of a heavenly reward or enhancing one's standing in society, the will towards self-aggrandizement added to the weight one had to carry rather than reduced it. Luang Po often returned to this theme of carrying a burden and putting down a burden. He said that if you were on a journey and you just kept piling new gains on your back, you'd eventually collapse. You had to know when to put some down. Share things. If you get a lump this big, then give some of it away and it will be lighter. If you keep the whole thing, it will be heavy. Practicing generosity was one of the most important factors that matured the mind and made it ready for more profound forms of renunciation, as could be seen in the many previous lives of the Buddha. Training yourself to give is like learning to walk. Keep increasing the amount. Start with material things, and as the power of giving grows stronger, you will be able to give up attachment to mental states. Immaterial things, matters of the heart and mind, and ultimately to a giving up of greed, hatred and delusion. The point Lung Po returned to again and again 
was that merit could not be measured by good deeds themselves, but by the mind with which they were performed. At any moment that the mind was filled with right view, with virtuous qualities, and the happiness of their presence, he said, the mind was merit. If the mind is endowed with merit, then wherever you make merit, it will always be full of joy. There's no need to celebrate, no need to let anyone know or see, no need for anything of that kind. There's just the energy of the mind that believes firmly in goodness. An unwholesome action does not become wholesome simply because everybody believes it to be so. There is a universal principle involved, independent of human perception. Similarly, a good action bears fruit even if it is not acknowledged as good by one's community. The noble ones perform good acts. Wherever they are, they do their practice. However much other people might deny that what they're doing is good, the goodness is there nonetheless. When someone does something bad, no matter how good others may say it is, it's still not good. Making offerings at a monastery was nurturing Buddhism, but lay Buddhists were not to consider that Buddhism lay outside of themselves or was owned by the Sangha. With wisdom, Nurturing one's own life and nurturing Buddhism were not different things because there was no Buddhism outside the minds of practicing Buddhists. When foolish people suffered, they either became angry or depressed or sought to forget their pain with sensual pleasures. Less foolish were those who chose to make merit as a way of cheering the mind and bringing some goodness into their life. Nevertheless, Unless they sought for the causes of their suffering and made efforts to eliminate them, making merit was only a superficial remedy. Merit and its opposite, demerit, were not measurable entities. They were not to be found in actions. They were the names of states of mind which each person had to identify for himself. If you meditate and investigate within until you reach the heart itself, you will see that badness refers to the bad things in your mind and merit to the good and noble things. Badness is inner distress. If you turn the attention within, you will see merit and harm, distress and happiness for yourself. For our life to be complete, we need two kinds of eyes. The physical eyes see, but incompletely. They can see trees and mountains and so on, but they don't see right and wrong. It's like the lights on a car. Do you think that it's the lights that see the road? The same principle applies. The awareness that knows the value of things lies in the heart. We have to bring things inward to have the inner eye. This inner eye had to be trained and educated to counter the tendency for the mind to be deceived by sense impressions. If we have only the external eyes, then we will be continually deceived. We'll see counterfeit things as real, unattractive things as attractive, bad things as good. 
Luang Po often used this simple analogy of the inner spiritual or heavenly eye that had to complement the outer corporeal eyes. It was a concept that would have been familiar to his listeners. Everyone knew that when Gondanya, the first disciple of the Buddha, realized the initial stage of enlightenment, he was proclaimed to have gained the Dhamma eye. You've got a body and you've got a mind. Everything you need. Don't go hankering after some god or other. Don't go looking elsewhere. Examine. Investigate to see whether, right now, is there metta in your mind? Is there compassion? Is there sympathetic joy? Is there honesty? Is there right view? Is there wrong view? Look at your mind. Even if you say something quite wrong, if your intention is good, then it's not wrong. Whatever you do, look at your intention. If your intention is undefiled, then there's no fault. Rebirth Those who have grown up in cultures dominated by the great monotheistic faiths tend to assume that all religious allegiances are founded upon belief in a fundamental and unique set of dogmas. Buddhism, however, does not insist on that kind of belief. Indeed, rebirth, often identified as a defining Buddhist dogma by non-Buddhists, is probably the feature of the teachings that is most controversial amongst modern Buddhists. Nevertheless, wherever there is doubt, there tends to be a desire for an authority figure to take it away. Once, a lay person who came to visit Luang Po with this desire for a definitive answer to the question of rebirth received a reply that confounded his expectations. Is there truly a life after this one? If I tell you, will you believe me? Yes, sir. Then you'd be a fool. Luang Po went on to explain that it's foolishness to base an unquestioning belief on the words of another. As long as beliefs are based on hearsay, he said, wisdom will never arise. Such questions are impossible to finally resolve and a cause of endless arguments and disputes. He gave an analogy. If you ask me, is there a future life? Then I ask you, is there a tomorrow? If there is, can you take me there? No, you can't. Even if it exists, you can't take me to see it. If there is today, then there must be tomorrow. But it's not a material thing that you can pick up and hand to someone to look at. Luang Po would remind his visitors that Buddhism is not about believing things, but about penetrating the truth of their life right now. Actually, the Buddha didn't teach us to expect that degree of proof. It's not necessary to dwell on doubts about whether or not there's a future life, or whether people are reborn. That's not the problem you have to address. You have no obligation to find an answer to such questions. Your obligation is to understand yourself in the present. You must know whether you are suffering, if you are, for what reason? That's what you have to know. And what's more, pursuing that knowledge is your personal responsibility. 
the advice was always to return to the present moment. The Buddha taught us to consider the present as the cause of all things. It is the cause of the future. Once today has passed by, then tomorrow will become today. The future, or tomorrow, comes into existence based on today. The past arises from the present as well. Once today has passed by, it becomes yesterday. This is the cause for their connection, so the Buddha taught us to reflect on all the present causes. Just that is enough, because if you create good causes in the present, then the future will be good as well, and so will the past. Most importantly, if you come to an end of suffering in the present, then there's no need to speak of a future life. This, Lung Por insisted, was in line with the way that the Buddha himself taught. As in the famous simile, wanting to know all the details of rebirth was missing the point. It was like a man shot with an arrow and refusing to have it removed until being told all the characteristics of the arrow. In the Buddha's time, there was a certain Brahmin who wondered what happens to people after death. He went to ask the Buddha and said, If you tell me whether or not there is rebirth, then I will ask for admission into the monkhood. If you cannot or will not tell me, then I won't. The Buddha replied, What's it to me whether you become a monk or not? That's your business, not mine. Then he said, Whether you become a monk or not, and whether a person is born or a person dies, whether a dead person is reborn or he's not, if you maintain this attitude, then you will suffer anguish for many more eons. The correct thing to do is to pull out the arrow right now. Questions about rebirth, said Lung Po, were based on faulty assumptions about what exactly is reborn. Ultimately, the truth of the matter is that while there is rebirth, nobody is born and nobody dies. But a statement of that profundity can only be truly understood by one who has investigated and thoroughly penetrated the meaning of impermanence, suffering and not-self. Rebirth was one of the topics about which he would say, take my words away with you and reflect on them. Consider it your homework. There is a well-known saying in Thailand that heaven lies in your chest, hell in your heart. In other words, while experiencing a strong pleasant feeling, it's as if one has been transported to a heaven realm. Conversely, experiencing a strong unpleasant feeling is like being transported to a hell realm. Some radical Buddhist teachers have taken this analogy further, rejecting the basic tenets of Buddhist cosmology and teaching that present mental pleasure and pain are the true meanings of heaven and hell. Lung Po did not share this rejection of the literal understanding of rebirth. He did, however, make use of the heaven and hell analogy as a means of encouraging his disciples to look more closely at their actions. These days, you know all the stories about people falling into hell and going up to heaven, but you don't know about yourself. 
somebody who is in good health physically and mentally, doesn't cause harm to himself or others and feels at ease. That person is dwelling in a heaven realm. Consider this well. Whatever place anyone commits a bad action, the Buddha called hell. Where is hell? Wherever the Buddha said, don't do this, it's wrong. If you do that thing, then the wrongness occurs immediately. That wrongness has unpleasant results, and those unpleasant results cause you to suffer. If you're suffering, you've fallen into hell. Hell is the whole environment of your suffering. The guardian of hell that grabs hold of people refers to the results of the bad gamma that people have committed. Wrongness leads us on to more wrongness. This guardian is everywhere. His eyes are wonderfully sharp. Whatever good or bad actions you perform, he sees them all, knows all about them. Your actions are your witness. They are the evidence you leave behind. Nothing is lost. Nothing falls by the wayside. But Luang Po made it clear that he was not denying the existence of heaven and hell realms as such, or rejecting the traditional representations of them. It was necessary to employ such vivid images in order to represent something beyond the scope of human imagination. If you do something bad, then you experience bad results. You become a hell being, which is agony. You climb up a thorn tree, and the thorns pierce you, but you don't ever die. When you get to the top of the tree, crows peck at your head, and you have to climb down. You get to the bottom, and there are dogs waiting there to bite you. There's no resting place, nothing but suffering. This manner of talking is called teaching by means of personification. Is it true? Yes, it's true as a personification of things that are not material realities. For instance, heaven and hell are not actually physical places as they appear in the traditional descriptions. Those descriptions are metaphors. It's like you want to explain about the taste of salt, but you're in a place that has no salt. So you put down a handful of sand in front of you and agree on calling it salt for the purposes of your exposition. Does it have a salty flavor? Of course not. It's not really salt. So why do you pretend that the sand is salt? Because this place you're in has no salt. You do it in order to give people at least some idea of what salt is like. But if the colorful descriptions of other realms are only approximations of reality, where does this leave the human realm? Are you really human? You are in a conventional sense. If you were truly human, then you'd have to possess the human virtues such as metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and you'd have to keep the five precepts the whole time. That's what it really means to be human, to possess all the virtues that confer upon you a complete humanity. Humanity has inner signs. As humans, if all these good qualities have matured within us, then we are fully human. 
This is where our humanity lies. It's not that birth with eyes and ears, arms and legs and so on, automatically makes us human. It looks like it, but in fact, that's a counterfeit humanity, not a true one. A true humanity demands human virtues, not causing harm to oneself or others, possessing good qualities. Listening to Dhamma The Buddha taught that listening to Dhamma talks is a great blessing. As a result, there evolved a tradition by which lay Buddhists who went to monasteries on important occasions to make merit would also ask to receive a formal teaching from the abbot. Over the centuries, however, sermons often came to play a ceremonial rather than an instructional role in people's lives. In northeast Thailand, the monk would sit on the Dhamma seat and read from a palm-leaf manuscript in a stiff, formal style that included many words in the Pali language that were unintelligible to the audience. Unsurprisingly, the audience's most common response was drowsiness. Even without the Pali words, the central tie used by educated monks in their sermons was hard to understand, and few could sustain their attention. When Luang Po heard his first Dhamma talk as a child, the common belief in his village was that understanding the meaning of the sermon was not the point. When I was a child, my parents and grandparents would go to the monastery to listen to the Dhamma on observance days. They went for the merit. The monk giving the sermon would talk about this subject and that, and they wouldn't understand very much of what he was saying at all. But they sat there anyway, for the merit. They believed that hearing the sound of the monk's voice was meritorious. In informal situations, monks spoke in dialect and expressed themselves directly. But as soon as they sat down on the elevated Dhamma seat, they would adopt an elevated tone. The forest monks, like Luang Po, made no such distinction. Sitting on the Dhamma seat, they spoke without preparation, in much the same down-to-earth way that they spoke in daily life. It was a small revolution in the propagation of Dhamma and returned the tradition to its long-forgotten roots. Luang Por explained to his lay disciples the kind of attention that was needed to truly benefit from listening to the Dhamma. He taught that the attitude to a discourse, the desires and expectations, the quietness of the mind of the listeners, all contributed to the benefits. Listeners, he said, should adopt an attitude of humility and respect to the teacher and the teaching. Now, I'm going to give you a Dhamma teaching. Pay as much attention as if the Buddha himself were sitting in front of you. Be attentive. Make your mind one. Close your eyes and sit comfortably. But not too comfortably. If you listen to Dhamma for the merit, you'll get drowsy. As soon as you begin to feel happy and comfortable, the drowsiness will come. When you're drowsy, then you don't know what's being said. When you don't know what's being said, you learn nothing. Merit-making always had to be accompanied by kusala, 
the wisdom factor, the awareness of what leads towards and what leads away from awakening. Listening to Dhamma should increase your intelligence. Intelligence is kusala. Kusala and merit are different things. Kusala wakes you up. It lets you know what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what should be abandoned and what should be cultivated. Merit, on the other hand, is just about putting more stuff into your basket, being comfortable, enjoying yourself. It's not awakening. It doesn't like investigating Dhamma. The benefits of listening to Dhamma with a lucidly calm and discriminating mind were seen clearly when the mind was able to retain the teachings in memory. The Dhamma is still present in your mind. Whatever you are doing, you still think of Dhamma, and Dhamma is protecting you. For instance, the monk has said that you should be patient. Put forth effort. Don't be cruel. Make your mind good. If you become angry, then endure through it, etc. If you really pay attention so that it sticks in your mind, it will be a supporting condition. Even as you're walking along the road, it's there in your mind. You arrive home, and one of your children does something to annoy you. At the same moment that the annoyance arises in your mind, the Dhamma that you've heard arises with it, teaching you to patiently endure, to keep yourself in a good frame of mind and let go. It arises simultaneously with the mental state and keeps teaching you. For such reasons, the Buddha said that the Dhamma protects us, and prevents us from falling into evil ways. Heedfulness Appamada, commonly translated as heedfulness, is one of the key Buddhist virtues. The term has also been rendered as unremitting mindfulness and vigilance. It involves constantly bearing in mind the work that needs to be done and how little time may remain to accomplish it. Heedfulness is the antidote to complacency. It was the subject of the Buddha's last exhortation, and has played a prominent part in the teachings of the great Buddhist masters through the ages, including those of Lung Po Cha. Know what you need to do, and what you need to lay down and abandon. Learn how to put your mind at ease, and experience lucid calm. Learn how to stop your mind from creating suffering. This is the path of the wise person in the world. Make a firm determination to practice in a way appropriate to this human birth. Don't fritter your life away. Lung Po urged his audiences to wake up to the preciousness of their human birth they were to apply themselves to the task of abandoning the unwholesome qualities in their minds and developing the wholesome while they still could. It was not possible to cheat on the hard work required by turning the mind to spiritual matters just before death and earning a last-ditch passage to a heaven realm. Some old-timers say that when a person is about to die that you should whisper the mantra putto, 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 in their ear. What use is that? 
somebody about to be laid out on a cremation pyre, what are they going to know of putto? Why don't people learn about putto while they're still young? Here they are, their breathing stopping and starting, calling out for their mothers, and you're whispering putto in their ear. Why tie yourself out for no reason? Don't bother. You're just making them more confused. Sila In his Dhamma discourses to lay Buddhists, Luang Po returned again and again to the fundamental importance of Sila. He explained the precepts in exhaustive detail, the reasoning behind them, the value of keeping them, the drawbacks of not doing so. A wise sense of shame and fear are the consequences of one's actions. These two things, they're called lokapalas, protect sentient beings. This term, lokapala, means literally world protectors. It refers to the personal and social benefits to be derived from this wise sense of shame, hiri, and fear of wrongdoing, uttappa, without which morality would be left groundless and the world more vulnerable. Expanding upon the Buddha's teachings that keeping the five precepts is the fundamental cause of rebirth in the human realm, Luang Po, returning to a favorite theme, said that it's only by keeping the five precepts that we become truly human in this life. If people lack sila for a day, then for that day, they are not fully human. If people are without sila for a year, then for that year they are not fully human. Only when sila is pure are people completely, fully human. The Dhamma could only manifest when one's life in the world was conducted within wise boundaries. Without sila, people lacked the self-respect to apply themselves to Dhamma practice. Luang Por observed that they felt ashamed to meet with monks, afraid that listening to Dhamma talks would provide painful reminders of their shortcomings. The Buddha taught that although sila is an inner quality of restraint, it is nurtured by keeping precepts. The importance afforded to the precepts may be gauged by the fact that almost all Theravada Buddhist ceremonies begin with a formal request from the lay community to the senior monk present to give them the refuges and five precepts. The monk does this by allowing his audience to repeat the refuges of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and then the precepts after him, one by one. The formula for taking each precept does not involve making vows, but making a commitment to educate one's conduct and speech in the form, I undertake the training rule to refrain from. For perhaps a majority of people in the Buddhist world, this short ceremony is rarely more than a ritual. Most participants do not genuinely intend to keep all of the precepts after the ceremony has ended. For them, the Buddha's teaching that virtue enhances merit-making has been received as a belief that the ceremony of requesting the precepts acts as a purification ritual preceding the offering of alms, etc., and that it intensifies any good karma created by the giving. But for those with a genuine wish to live by the precepts, a formal request from a monk that they respect may constitute a renewal of their commitment to them.
In the case that the ceremony is conducted by a monk like Luang Po Cha, the moral and spiritual authority of the monk may give the ceremony a particularly binding power. Luang Po emphasized that the essence of sila was the intention to refrain. At the moment that you determine to keep the precepts, then sila arises immediately. It is the intention that is the sila. If you understand the matter in this way, then your wisdom will become wide-ranging. On another occasion, he taught lay supporters three ways of keeping precepts. In the first case, you ask for the precepts from a monk. In the second, you refrain by yourself. You know what the precepts are, and you make a determination to keep them. The third case is the absolute sila of the noble ones. Here, the intention is to refrain once and for all. Whatever is wrong action, by body or speech, I will give up from this day forward. It's a decisive sila. The noble ones have this kind of sila. Constant mindfulness protects their minds. They keep watch over themselves all the time. These are the three paths by which sila can arise. All three can be a foundation for Nibbāna. One of the first generation of lay supporters summarized how she understood Luang Po's teaching on the precepts. Luang Po taught us to keep the five precepts. Even if, to begin with, they became sullied every now and then, he told us when that happened to try to make a fresh start. For the first precept, he told us not to take the life of living creatures or to cause them pain, because doing so is evil and will have unpleasant results. The second precept means refrain from stealing or cheating. If anyone was to steal anything of ours, we would be filled with sorrow and regret. Because other people have the same feelings as us, we should not steal from them. The third precept means refraining from adultery, not being unfaithful. If this precept is broken, it leads to arguments and recriminations. Couples become suspicious and mistrustful of each other. The fourth precept is about lying and deceit. If you lie and cheat, it demeans you. Nobody wants to mix with you, nobody respects anything you say, and nobody pays heed to your words. The fifth precept means refraining from drinking alcohol. Alcohol makes the mind reckless and heedless and forgetful of what's right and wrong. It can lead to every kind of evil action. When people are drunk, their demeanor is just like that of someone crazy. All signs of the manners and dignity of a well-brought-up person disappear. Luang Po taught that without sila, families would never know peace and harmony. There would be continual strife and turmoil. Keeping precepts was the indispensable foundation for a happy and nourishing family life. As one of the monastery's lay supporters recalled, He taught us to be hard-working and to grow rice 
and plant vegetable gardens and fruit orchards, to grow chilies and aubergines and then sell our surplus in the market. From that, we'd get the money to buy what we wanted. Fish wasn't expensive and we would be able to buy it in the market and so avoid going fishing, which not only took up a lot of time that we could be using for other work, but also made bad gamma. This was practical advice and made sense to us all. Formerly, the local villagers would devote all of their land to rice cultivation. The poorness of the soil meant that they left it fallow for months at a time. Luang Po advised them to change their ways. We'd never known much about growing fruit or vegetables. But when Luang Po came to Wat Bapong, he taught us how to grow vegetables, to plant orchards. He made us more awake to the possibilities. We became more hardworking and developed outer matters and inner qualities together. It was a big improvement and it wasn't so difficult. Those who managed to keep the five precepts all the time were happy, without distress, and found it very beneficial. Enumerating the benefits of sila, Luang Po would sometimes quote the somewhat spurious etymology in the path of purification, the Visuddhimagga. After stating that the words sila and satcha or integrity are synonymous, he said that sila also means sila or stone. Just as a stone thrown into water sinks down to the solid ground beneath it, sila adds gravity to a person's demeanor. Its benefits also include a moral authority that permits fearlessness in public assemblies. If you possess sila, if you create no bad gamma through body, speech or mind, you can speak without misgivings, speak directly without fear, be courageous in acting and speaking in important matters. You're not in awe of anyone, not frightened by anyone. Moral people are fearless in their communities and fearless at the time of death. When you've done nothing bad, or if you have, and you've now abandoned that action and there are no grounds for remorse, the mind is at ease. Keeping precepts is not an end in itself. It creates the conditions for the development of meditation practice. When your actions and speech are impeccable, the mind cools down. And if you practice meditation, concentration arises easily. The mind is in a state of merit, in a wholesome state, because it has no concerns about past actions. During the three-month monastic rains retreat, Luang Po would encourage the lay community to give special attention to their precepts. One elderly disciple remembered his advice well. He taught us to gather a number of small stones and develop a kind of sila meditation. Whenever we got home from work, he said we should review our actions, and if we'd broken a precept, to put a small stone on a pile. At the end of the rains retreat, we were to count how many stones there were in the pile, how many times we'd gone wrong, and then go and report to him. 
he said, as householders, we should all try to keep the five precepts purely. If we have sila, then we feel cool and happy. Our families are free of distress and commotion, and we live in harmony and friendship with our neighbors, as if they were our own flesh and blood. He told us to be truthful and moral, that if we keep the five precepts purely, then blameless wealth would follow. If our sealer became broken or sullied or flawed, then our wealth would start to erode away. Some people were inspired by Lung Po's discourses, but soon became discouraged when trying to live by his advice. He told the story of a certain Chinese businessman who returned to the monastery a few days after formally requesting the three refuges and five precepts, looking distraught. After bowing three times, he blurted out, Lung Po, I've been ill for the past three days, ever since I received the refuges and five precepts from you. My wife has been complaining. She keeps saying it was a bad idea. I don't know how I'm going to make a living if the precepts make me ill like this. I've come to return them. An amused Lung Po replied, Huh. I heard about this thing happening in the Buddha's time, and I thought it was just a story. You can't give the precepts back to me. They don't belong to me. They belong to the Buddha. You'll have to send them back to him. Give it a bit more time. The layman did not return. Some three years later, Lung Po met him and asked him if he'd got past his doubts about the precepts. And the layman smiled proudly and said yes, he had. Now he didn't waver whatever anyone said. Lung Po praised him. Now you're a true human being. Non-harming The first of the five precepts embodies the central Buddhist moral imperative, do not harm. It can seem puzzling to visitors to Thailand that so many Thai Buddhists appear uncommitted to this core Buddhist teaching of universal harmlessness. One reason put forward to explain the anomaly is that fishing and hunting played a vital role in Thai communities for thousands of years before the adoption of Buddhism. A diet based upon rice and fish survived the change of religious affiliation and ahimsa, the ideal of harmlessness as a non-negotiable deal, never really stuck. A common justification amongst Isan villagers has been that it's a good and noble thing not to kill but only really practical for monastics and wealthy people who don't have to struggle for survival in a tough world. Others shake their head and blame their gamma. Luang Po was familiar with the life of the villagers and understood their values and the way they thought. He acknowledged their concerns and did not make unrealistically high demands of them. He knew that if he were to do so, many would simply stop coming to the monastery embarrassed at being unable to follow his advice. With regard to the first precept, he explained that whereas the killing or ordering the killing of living beings was a clear transgression of the precept, the act of buying fish in the market created no serious bad gamma. This is not an unchallenged interpretation of the teaching in Buddhist communities. 
There is an argument that buying fish already killed increases the likelihood of the future killing of other fish and is therefore unethical. The Buddha's statement in a sutta in the Numbered Discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya 4, Sutta 264, that the highest level of practice of the first precepts includes not approving of or speaking in praise of killing, is quoted in support of this view. However, the purchase of meat was not considered by Luang Po Cha or most Theravada teachers to constitute a sufficiently strong link in the chain leading to the death of creatures for it to be comically significant and therefore unacceptable for lay Buddhists. Luang Po continued a long tradition in taking the renunciation of killing or ordering the killing of creatures as a legitimate and workable standard for rural Buddhist communities. While Lung Po did not promote vegetarianism, he also did not tone down his critique of the killing of living beings for food. When he visited Chithurst Monastery in West Sussex, England, for the first time in 1979, Lung Po was much taken by the sight of wild rabbits running around on the lawn behind the shrine room in the early morning. He remarked wryly that it was not a sight he would expect to see in Thailand. On his return to Wat Bapong, an account of the Chithurst rabbits, free and fearless, unharmed by the local villagers, joined his list of stock anecdotes. The teaching, often left implied, was that if a non-Buddhist, meat-eating country could refrain from hunting and eating wild animals, then why can't we Buddhists? If that was back here, all that would be left of those rabbits by now would be the little pellets of dried dung, here, and on other such occasions, Luang Po would speak in ways aimed at stimulating hiri, the sense of wise shame, by pointing, often with humour, to the discrepancy between the professed values of his audience and their actual behaviour, and reminding them that it was in their power to change. In public talks, Luang Po focused on the more egregious kinds of killing. It had long been a custom to slaughter animals to feed guests at big ceremonial occasions, whether a marriage, a funeral, or even a temporary ordination. Luang Po reminded people of the importance of this first precept. If everyone kept this precept, the country would not be in such turmoil, the world would not be in such a mess. The Buddha forbade the taking of life right from ants and insects upwards. Because if you're capable of killing ants and insects, you're capable of killing rats and birds, ducks and chickens, cattle and buffaloes, horses and elephants. If you can kill horses and elephants, you have it within you to kill a human being. And in the end, you're capable of killing an arahant. There's that kind of progression. So, the Buddha forbade killing altogether. You shouldn't kill anything, not even an ant or an insect. In the end, wise people look for a way out of the world, to make as little bad gummer as possible, until they can stop making it altogether. Ponudang was one who yielded to Lung Po's logic and gave up the taking of life. He taught us lay people to refrain from taking life, to make our living in an honest way. But most lay people would get stuck on this precept, including me. 
Because we lived in the countryside, we all thought, if we don't take life, what are we going to eat? In my mind, I wanted to argue the point. If all we took to offer the monks every day to eat with their rice was chilli sauce, wouldn't all the monks leave the monastery? But Lung Po had the wisdom to be able to lead us out of our delusion. He gave the example of civil servants and the Chinese merchants. He said, They don't do any rice farming, so how is it they eat rice every day? What about the utensils you use, the pots and plates and so on? Do you know how to make those things yourselves? Can you make a spittoon? If you can't, then how is it that you possess those things? How did you get them? You have to find a way out with wisdom. If you don't take life, you have to use your intelligence to find another method. It's not always necessary to kill in order to eat meat. Wise people must find a skillful means of avoiding the creation of bad gumma. You must refrain from unwholesome actions of body, speech and mind, because it will have unfortunate consequences. I considered what he said, and agreed with all of his reasoning. Poor Um was one disciple who had a sudden change of heart. I'd been fishing out at Cum Pond. My wife was sitting preparing food in the kitchen, and I was sorting out the fish. Suddenly, out of the blue, the thought arose in my mind, there's so many lives here. It's not in the tens of thousands, there's many hundreds of thousands of lives that I've taken out of that pond. And me, I'm just one life. So I said to my wife, what do you think? All these creatures have to die just because of the two of us. And she said, it's up to you, whatever you say. Two or three days later was observance day and I went to the monastery to formally declare myself a lay follower. Luang Po asked me whether I could keep from taking life, and I said yes. For how many years? For your whole life? No, sir. Why not? Well, how many years then? I'd like to ask for three years. Why such a short time? If I suffer more than I do now, then I'll ask to be released from my vow, or if everything stays the same, or if I'm not happy. All right? If that's what you want, look after the precept well. If you can't, then that'll be the end of it. After that, I gave up taking life. I planted sugarcane out in the middle of the forest. The strange thing was that I had a dog, and it liked to hunt the mouse deer, and would bring them back in its mouth. I spent three years like that, and I ended up keeping the precept for the rest of my life. The spirit, if not the letter of the first precept, extends to the mistreatment of animals. A man asked Luang Po what he thought about him keeping a dove in a cage. I'd say letting the dove go would be the best thing to do. You've locked it up in a cage, even though it's done nothing wrong. Try to imagine how it feels. Suppose somebody was to capture you, put you in a cage, give you food and drink, clothes and a sleeping place, 
and have you eat and excrete in that cage. Would you be happy? Would you like it? Would you thank your captor for it? Or how would you feel you can probably imagine? Luang Po said that it was just as well other species of living beings did not know human languages. They'd scold and curse us and try to rip us to pieces. Or else they would go on a protest march to some appeals court. It's like they've been framed and punished for something they didn't do. Right speech. The pathway between the brain and the tongue is so short that refraining from wrong speech is a major challenge, especially in busy and taxing environments. The fourth precept deals with refraining from deliberate falsehood, the most comically harmful kind of wrong speech. But for dumber practitioners, this is only considered to be the bare minimum standard or bottom line of restraint. Right speech also requires the effort to abandon harsh and divisive speech and, the most difficult of all, idle chatter and gossip. Be careful of your speech. Speak true words. Speak words that are of benefit to the listener. Don't speak roughly or use coarse words. Be mindful of what you are saying. Make your speech appropriate to the listener so that when you finish speaking, both you and the listener are happy about what's been said. Alcohol The fifth precept, requiring the renunciation of alcohol and, by extension, all other intoxicating drugs that have similar effects on the mind's moral compass, is probably the least popular precept amongst lay Buddhists in Thailand. Luang Po once commented that some people feel possessive about their bad gamma and are afraid of being separated from it. He considered that people who drink alcohol or take drugs provide clear examples of a particular failure of intelligence, not wanting the results of bad gamma but continually creating the causes for it and neglecting the causes of goodness. On one occasion, he recalled trying to coax a heavy drinker into giving up drinking and the man became as distraught as if he were being asked to abandon the thing dearest to him in the world. Luang Po remembered for once being at a loss for words, when the man moaned, Oh no, God's above, just one more year, one more year. Despite the precept, alcohol consumption is endemic in Thai society. Luang Po recalled an encounter that took place on a night train. Two men came stumbling towards me. One of them said, Luang Po, please give me some Dhamma. I looked at them. Their eyes were muddy. I don't know what they were intoxicated with, but here they were, asking for the Dhamma. I said, Don't build your house yet. Level the land first. One was confused. I don't know what you mean. And I said to him, If you get the opportunity, go to Wat Ba Pong. It'll be easy to listen to the Dhamma there. You'll be able to listen to it well. Today, the occasion and the surroundings and the audience aren't conducive. Teaching the Dhamma to one unfit to hear it was a waste of time and effort. It would be like filling a car up with petrol, just in order for it to run about in circles 
a complete waste of fuel. The husband of one of the monastery's lay supporters from Banco was a heavy drinker and made her life a difficult one. Finally, he died. After the cremation, the widow brought an earthenware jar containing his ashes to the Wat and requested that they be placed in one of the niches in the monastery wall designated for that purpose. With many of the dead man's drinking buddies present, Lung Po said a few blunt words. Not so long ago, he was drinking and carousing, dancing back and forth, and now he's danced his way right into a jar. What's the use of bringing dead bones to the what? That's no good at all. You should bring bones that can still dance. Then they'll be able to listen to the Dhamma and understand it. What use are these bones? Only cows and creatures that eat bones are interested in them. Many people gave up alcohol through their faith in Luang Por. The drinking culture in the villages around Wat Bapong shrunk appreciably over the years. One of the grateful ex-drinkers summed up the feelings of many when he said, I used to really love drinking. I didn't need a glass. I couldn't get it down quick enough that way. I'd just swig it from the bottle. It got so that two or three bottles wouldn't affect me at all. I loved the stuff. If Luang Po hadn't taught me to give it up, I'd probably be down in the gutter by now. Talking to people who had no background in Dhamma practice, Luang Po kept it simple. He explained that people addicted to alcohol created bad gamma. Under the influence of alcohol, people lost their sense of right and wrong, their ability to refrain from unwise action. Whatever pleasure they gained from drinking in the present was far outweighed by the suffering they would have to undergo in the future. As one local villager remembered, on this topic, Luang Por could be brutal. Luang Por said that I must try to give it up because it's the path to ruin, to evil and suffering which would burn me up. It would lead me to disaster and a living hell. He said to me, Have you ever seen someone drunk? They look disgusting. Their speech is disgusting. They stagger and stumble around. You can't talk to them. They're like people that have lost their minds. They create a lot of bad gamma. In their next life, they'll be mentally defective. If you don't want to be like that, you should try to give it up. When I thought over what Lung Po said, I started to feel afraid and I gave up drinking. Right Livelihood Making a living in the world with honesty and integrity was given so much importance by the Buddha that he declared it one of the eight constituent elements of the path to liberation. Lung Po taught that those wishing to develop their Dhamma practice should seek to avoid work that involves harm to self and others, and find work that, if not actively conducive to spiritual progress, then at least is not obstructive to it. Those who know the Dhamma are not lazy. They are intelligent and hard-working. But their diligence in acting and speaking is accomplished with a mind that knows how to let go and is at peace. The Buddha taught that that is the way free from stress. It's right livelihood.
It feels comfortable. Even if work is hard at times, it still feels comfortable because there is no fault in the work itself. Some livelihoods were singled out by the Buddha as wrong livelihood. Trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants and trading in poisons. On one occasion, a businessman who had sold many things in his time, including alcohol, had doubts about right livelihood and came to Wat Ba Pong to ask for some advice. Lung Po said, Sell whatever you like, but don't sell alcohol. The gummic result will be an increase in your suffering and inner turmoil. Sell other things. Even if you don't get rich, it's better to avoid selling things that are unethical. Remember, make your living in an honest, moral way and you will experience happiness and peace in your life. On another occasion, he taught, Don't imagine that simply by making a lot of money and amassing a lot of possessions that you'll be happy. That's a foolish idea. Whether it's a lot or a little, work towards those things, but no moderation, no when it's enough. That feeling of enough arises the moment that you stop craving for more. As long as you still have craving in your mind, there is never enough. It's like you give a dog some sticky rice, and it gobbles down three lumps, but can't manage a fourth. Even so, when a chicken approaches to eat the leftover lump of rice, the dog growls at the chicken and threatens to bite it. Even though its stomach is full, the dog is still possessive of the lump of rice. Its heart is not full. No matter how much it eats, its heart is never full.